as you get older, you, you refocus those things and you, you decide what's important, whether, you know, working till 10 o'clock at night is important or is it more important to go have dinner with your mom on Sunday night? Yeah. I've just come to the conclusion that having dinner with your mom on Sunday night is more important. So, Mr. David Bottrell, welcome to the show. Mr. Blake Bottrell, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> so, my first question obviously has to be, uh, are you ready to get hurt again? Ah, uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> we live in hope uh, for the Leafs. We hope that they can actually pull out a first-round victory and maybe a little further, but I think over the years I've just generally lowered my expectations on this team, and we get what we get. That's fair. I start with that topic a little bit in jest, but you actually helped James Myrtle publish an article in The Athletic uh, about a new goal song that you had written for or produced for the Maple Leafs about a year ago, and you were attempting to get it in front of people. Um, how important is it for creative people to have an outlet beyond what might be their primary work or project? Oh, I think it's really important. Um, uh, creativity is really the lifeblood, I think, of humanity in a lot of ways that, um, if you uh, if you spend your your entire existence either you know just i mean experiencing creativity is great but but participating in it, it it feeds part of your soul that nothing else feeds i think so having an outlet outside of your your regular gig i think whatever it is i mean you know it doesn't have to be the painting sculpting you know any kind of creativity writing you know gardening um dock building, you know, anything like that, anything that, that, that you get that sense of accomplishment from and, and feel like you've managed to actually contribute to the beauty of the world. <laughs> so I have this quote that I've been mulling over recently from an author named Jason Pergen, uh, who wrote some like comedy horror stuff something uh i think it's called john dies at the end and there's another one that's a book about spiders anyways not super relevant but the quote says basically accept that your heroes are full of shit and your heroes aren't gods just regular people that probably got good at one thing by neglecting literally everything else and i know that you've become friends with a number of people who other people might view as heroes I just wanted to kind of get your reaction to that quote and how you tend to address sort of the modest fame that you have and also deal with those also in that world. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. It's a modest amount of fame that I get, and it's mostly industry-based, um, which is all I ever really wanted. Uh, I didn't want fame myself. But as far as meeting your heroes or, or working with people uh, that you admire – um, yes, you're right. Sometimes uh, success is built out of uh, avoiding things you don't like to do or other parts of your life. Not always is that the case, though. Sometimes it's just a matter of really working hard on the thing that you love. You don't have to neglect everything else like family relationships, other interests. And, and sometimes, in fact, if you're a creator, that other interests actually can feed into the other thing you do. Um, I spent a lot of time years ago working for an artist called Peter Gabriel, as you know, um, and he thrived on distraction. 
So he was incredibly creative musically, but he would um, fill his other time with all kinds of things, including charity work and and organizing charity tours. And but he was also when I was working with him, trying to put together a theme park. And you know, he had uh, artistic and and functional interests in lots of different things, and that fed into his ultimate creativity, such that. You know, he was able to draw on on life experience outside of just music, in order to to aid in his creativity. Talking about being regular people, you have this dichotomy of the modest amount of fame that we'll call it, and just being a normal guy. It was weird to me that all of my friends in high school were sort of fanboys of you and all the work that you've done with. Whether I think mostly, I think it was the BT Bam album, the the Dream Theater album, and then obviously all the Tool stuff. But it was weird to me that they were sort of fanboys and you were just Uncle Dave. And I know that family is super important to you, given that I know that you try to have dinner with your mom every Sunday still. Um, how do you continue to prioritize or make sure you continue to prioritize time for family and things like that in a world that's constantly vying for our attention? You know... Um maintaining those relationships is really difficult um and you really have to make the effort when i was younger and i was living in england it was sort of not easier but i couldn't see family as much as i wanted to and that was hurtful but i did reach out you know back in the days of just phone um and you know then cell phone and then you know we've come now to the zoom sort of thing but it's something that you really actively have to nurture because I found, you know, when I was really driven and, and trying to uh, build my career, a lot of those things did get neglected. And I, I regret a lot of that. You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't spending enough time in some of my you know younger relatives lives a lot of the time. And, and I feel I feel bad about that. Um, but, you know, hopefully as I've gotten older and uh, I've refocused um, what's important to me, then I'm hoping to kind of make up for some of that neglect over the years <laughs> from before. Um, it's it's really hard, especially with uh, uh, in working in the creative fields. I mean, you know yourself the work that you do. You don't just stop at five o'clock. You know, you yeah. go into the evenings, and and certain things in your life get neglected. Hopefully, you have people around you that understand that. And my family was always incredibly understanding of of what I did, even when I started, you know, early on in studios where I wasn't making anything, I was working for free or $300 a month kind of thing. You know, they were understanding, yeah. they knew that, that I had a passion for it and were accepting of the fact that they wouldn't maybe see me a lot of the time. Um, as you get older, you, you refocus those things and you, you decide what's important, whether, you know, working till 10 o'clock at night is important, or is it more important to go have dinner with your mom on Sunday night? Yeah. I've come to the conclusion that having dinner with your mom on Sunday night is more important. Sticking with family for just a minute and on the continual, continual theme there of making sure you're pri prioritizing the right things. Um, you lost your dad when you were 19. I lost my dad, your brother, when I was 14 or 15. How much did that experience cause you to grow up a little faster than maybe you otherwise would have? I think it took a long time before I actually did grow up. You see, when that happened for me, um, I was already at the stage where I was kind of on the f 
on the cusp of a young adult. You were not. You were much younger. And so, you know, it affected you in ways that, that I can only, uh, I can't imagine, really, losing your dad at 15. It was horrible. Um, losing mine at 19 was pretty bad. But it kind of put me to sleep a little bit. And I, I became quite selfish. Um, and I went down a couple of paths that weren't the best. And it actually, funnily enough, as you say this, I don't want to choke myself up, but it was your dad who came back and kind of kicked me in the ass at one point and, and helped me to realize that, that I wasn't the only person that had suffered this loss. Uh, others had too. And, you know, I could, I could reach out and maybe help people a little bit more. And then um, it kind of culminated in my third year of college when a really good friend of mine actually committed suicide at that point. And that kind of woke me back up in a way, as long as well as your dad um, uh, berating me at the time. But uh, it, it really pointed out that I was going down the wrong path. And at that point, I, I shifted my my energies to the more creative side of my life. Got a you know internship in a studio and and kind of ran down that road. Um, got to a place where I, I feel. Um, I felt comfortable with, with where my life path was going. So it was really difficult um, with the loss, and I, I, I became pretty selfish, went down a few wrong paths, another tragedy, and then kind of woke back up and thought, you know what, I really hate what I'm doing. Kind of the same as you, you know, when you were you know, in university, and it was like, well, I tried this, and this is trying to make this work, and then call it, you know, tried to call it, tried to, you know, that didn't work. Now you're on a great path, right? Yeah. Same, our, our, our histories are, are kind of intertwined that way, I think. That's, that seems fair to say to me. So you're giving an address at Queen's University in Kingston next month, and you're going to receive an honorary degree. What's your outgoing message to those students that are about to hop into the real world, as we've just talked about? dealing with uh, it, it, all sorts it is of stuff a little it's it's early. a little cliched uh, unfortunately <laughs> um i'm not the greatest writer in the world but uh it really is this there's a number of themes in there but a lot of it is you know find a purpose you can fall in love with and find find um a way to find a way to to fall in love with that purpose but also give back and and use your skills you know it's, there's a lot of growing up over time and i feel like you know i'm still growing up in a way at 61 years old, but um, my my manager Nicole, she put me up for an honorary doctorate at, at Queens, which unbeknownst to me, and I'm extremely grateful for it. I would have never thought that that would happen, but um, she put me up for this, and they accepted. And so, you know, my message to them is to try to try to you know you, you can't go down the same path as other people all the time, but finding things in life that that really make you happy that. You know, if you're working on something, you're going to be doing it a lot, a long time, and you ought to be happy while you're doing it. So that's generally the theme of what I want to tell them. Yeah. And sort of leads into the next question of, as these students go out into the working world, you started your, what is now your career as a T-boy working an unpaid internship at a music studio that's just down the road from me here in Hamilton. Um I'm a big proponent of doing free work when it helps advance your career. Why do you think people have such a visceral reaction today 
when people talk about unpaid internships, even when they don't necessarily have the skills that they want to be paid for? I took the un, uh, unpaid internship because I walked into a recording studio and fell in love. Um, not everybody has that gift given to them. Um, some people uh, really just want to do a job, work for the weekend, you know, and, and, and utilize their, their resources and time on other things in life. Um, I think creatives generally find that you're, you're forced into the giving, giving your time for free as long as you're receiving something of knowledge in return, I think it's fine. Um, when it turns into, hey, band, can you play here at my restaurant for free just for the exposure? You know, I've spent a career seeing bands get, get screwed over for, you know, potential exposure. And, you know, essentially that doesn't pay the rent. And I think creatives have spent a lot of time giving away their, you know, especially when they get to the point when they're um, quite accomplished, being asked to give away their skill. Early on in your career, early on in life, sure, I, I, I take, took on things for free all the time, and that's fine. You get to a certain point in your life, and people are still asking you that. You have to really value yourself. So I can understand a certain visceral reaction to the, to the being asked to do things for free when you have a certain skill set already developed. You know, If you're learning, no problem. But then the client has to understand at that point what they're getting is a learning experience as much as anything. So it's, it's, there's, there has to be a line that I think creatives draw at some point of what they're willing to give away for free and, and if they're going to learn something by it and whatnot, what they feel like they're worth after a while. Yeah, for sure. I think it's always definitely a trade-off of either you're learning something or you're networking with people. I'm sure you know as well as I do that the adage of who you know and not what you know is more true than anyone wants it to be. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that also is a big proponent of why I see that route as so valuable for people earlier in their careers. But in terms of uh, the giving back portion of it, I know you participate in a lot of sessions at Metalworks, which is a, a um, university college uh, type program in Toronto. How is that experience, and we'll get to some of the charity stuff you do later, but how is directly working with students in that sort of capacity um, help to fulfill you uh, past the, the creative endeavors? Yeah, well, um, going to Metalworks and Harris Institute and doing like little mini seminars or talks with people, um, there's a thirst for knowledge of amongst these kids about the industry and about people's experience. And I've just been doing it for a long time so they can pick my brain about stuff and I can give back to them and help them much like I do with the artists that I work with, help them to avoid pitfalls and avoid going down avenues that I've already been down and find that they don't, it doesn't work. You know, sometimes people listen, sometimes they don't, but you can always say, look, I've, I've run down this street and here's where it led for me. Um, it may lead somewhere different for you, but this is where it led me. And it's really, really fulfilling to, to, you know, speak to these students and, you know, look at their enthusiasm and, and kind of get back that early feeling of falling in love with what you do for a living from them. Cause that's, that's what happened to me at the very beginning. It was like walking into a studio, doing sessions at the beginning and thought this was the best thing ever. 
and seeing that in their eyes that you know like this is this is an amazing um doorway to to a path that that's you know going to be an amazing career or amazing life um and and seeing that in their eyes really kind of feeds me uh back um into the, the same kind of feeling that I had at the beginning of my career yeah touching on the the artist side of that too i've heard you talk about how it almost feels better for you to have taught something to your artists or or have them say that they learned something or get something out of the session beyond just making a hit record and that's where you have the fulfillment it's not getting three grammys or having a best-selling single or whatever it is it's it's about the the artist and seeing them on their journey and their growth through the whole process. Absolutely. Uh, as you said, the, the, the best compliment I can get from an artist is when they come to me after the record and say, I'm a better musician because of working with you. That's, uh, you can't beat that. So switching gears a little bit here, my trip to Thailand sort of drastically reshaped how I saw the world and not that you started traveling at the exact same time that I did, but you're much more traveled than I am. What's maybe your biggest takeaway or revelation from all the time that you've spent traveling? Um, well, you got lots of time left. <laughs> Traveling's not done for you yet, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I gained a really fascinating perspective uh, from traveling from you know all the places in the world that I've been. Uh, I think I saw I, I saw the injustice of income inequality around the world. You know, we played a place uh, in Costa Rica, you know, a big stadium and a lot of rich people were there. And then to get to the place, you're driving past corrugated tin buildings, you know, full of full of people. And in India, same thing. You know, we were, you know, out uh, playing near the Red Fort and, you know, outside there are throngs of people living in tents, which... You now see, sadly, in Toronto and Hamilton, you know, but um, getting a perspective and, and spending time in places, I, I, you know, I did a lot of touring, which was great, but you're really in and out quite quickly. You're into the city, out of the city, you know, um, you don't get a chance really in one day or two days off here and there to really feel the, the, um, the spirit of the place you are. But when I go and make a record somewhere and I'm spending a couple of months and actually living like locals, you know, I did a lot of work in Belgium. So going to a supermarket in Belgium and having to use pigeon Flemish to try and get, you know, your cereal for the morning. <laughs> um, just just getting a perspective on, on life from other people, um, I think, is invaluable. I really wish that it was almost part of an early education curriculum where people went away for a year. A year. And, and, and I know that, you know, some people do exchange student programs and that's great. But you know, if everybody could do that, or even in university, one year of university, spend somewhere else, just just to get a different perspective, because we suffer a lot. Even in this day and age of of international communication, we suffer from myopia in our um, perspective on life and getting a perspective from somewhere else. I was hoping that you know, when the internet was growing and and international communication was growing, I, I thought that it would. Um, Sort of increased diversity and increased diversity of thought and experience and uh, perspective and and it actually kind of did the opposite it, it created echo chambers um, which is really sad and so in a way physically going somewhere and just spending time 
in another place, learning how other people live. You don't have to be every, you don't have to go everywhere, but just realizing that people live different lives in different parts of the world and have different ideas on what's important. It's really it's really a, a, an invaluable experience to have, especially as a young person, because it develops how you then see the world. Yeah, I think that was the biggest part for me, sort of hitting on your um, inequality aspect. When I went over to Thailand, obviously, it's not quite as bad as some other places, but just going over there and seeing the disparity in income and I could live very, very comfortably for about 800 Canadian dollars a month at the time, that doesn't even pay three quarters of my rent now. Like it, it's just a totally different world. And to come back here, it gave me so much more gratitude for the way that we live and how the problems that we have are nowhere near anything that anyone would consider an actual problem. No. And, uh, you know, when I spent time in Africa, same thing, you know, you, you see that, you know, people are just on survival mode and, you know, they're getting by with a goat and a blanket on the floor to sleep and a mud hut. And, you know, it really, it really shows you your privilege, I think. And, and at the same time makes me grateful for, you know, the country that we live in and that I grew up in and, you know, how safe and comfortable and unthreatening it generally is. Obviously, we have problems here too. This, you know, we're not immune to um, income inequality or disparity or, or despair um, of people. But in general, my life has been, has been a gift of ease and comfort for the most part. And, you know, the troubles that I've gone through in life have been minuscule in comparison to the things that I've seen in some places. Perfect. So I have to get one hot take from you in the middle here. I was on Twitter yesterday or the day before, I think, and saw a video from a TikTok. I don't even know if he was a music producer or what, but he had gotten AI to generate a music track and then used an AI voice model to model the voices of Drake and The Weeknd and created an entire track with no artist involvement that sounds like it could be a Drake track and just dropped it. And it's two and a half minutes long and you would never be able to tell the difference. What, like, you've seen crazy technological advancements in the music industry. Where the heck is all this going? <laughs> Boy, if I knew that, <laughs> I think I'd be a very wealthy man. Um, you know, I think that um, machines will probably be able to do this kind of work. Um, they're, they're all, however, pulling on the creativity of the past. Um, I think the, the modern AI programs are not working from a blank slate, right? They're not, they're not coming from... Well, there's nothing going on here, but now I, I have access to every sample library, every vocal modeling uh, algorithm that's out there. So I can do a pastiche of anything if I'm chat GPT music AI program, yeah. right? I can do that. But coming up with something 
from a blank slate. I think that's, um, I suppose as humans, we do have the same access, but I think our filters are more complex. Our filters of that information that we've taken in is um, dependent completely on our life experience. So I still think that, at least at this point, humans will come up with more originality in creation. Um, the the uh, AI programs will be able to replicate and and you know maybe Im improve using so many influences that that we um, as a human can't get. We can we can't listen to every song, every sound library, everything. It's just not enough time. Um, so I don't know whether it will be a good or a bad thing. Um, I'd be very curious to hear uh, 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 an AI program come up with a folk song or a piece of classical music. I'm sure there'd be some, something interesting to be learned from it. Um, I'm still a humanist, so, and I work with humans. I'd, I'd rather... <laughs> work with people as, as frustrating as it can be sometimes. Um, I think that, that we ourselves as people are, are doing enough to make uh, creative endeavors be difficult in, in the world of, of um, American Idol or uh, um, The Voice or whatever, these things that, that make music more of a disposable thing. Uh, that's, that's where I see more of the problem in, in music being a disposable commodity as opposed to um, a life-enriching experience. Um, we can't have necessarily statues that, that last as long, or music that lasts as long as the statues of David or um, uh, the prisoners or things like that. But um, I still think that, that treating music as a disposable is a sad uh, um, end to where we've, we've uh, utilized entertainment these days. Yeah. I I definitely wholeheartedly agree with you and I'm excited to see where it goes from a possibility perspective, but definitely don't think that we're going to be replacing the artistry that is um I mean it's you know what the, the, it's it's kind of for me AI is kind of like the rhyming dictionary, right? It's providing you with source materials, providing you with ideas. If it can, if it can give you ideas and um, uh, fuel your own creativity by giving you different perspectives and different suggestions on things, great. Um, a rhyming dictionary, if you use it long enough, can write a song, uh, can write a lyric, can write a poem. You know that rhymes. Yeah. Whether it be good or not, I don't know. But uh, it, it's it's another tool. I think that the the AI programs for me will just end up being another tool. And as, as always, when you look at um, things like um, guitar amplifiers that were turned up way beyond what they were supposed to be or voice tuning programs tuned, turned way up, you know, broken essentially, that's where creativity really lies is in the breaking of the new technologies and using it in ways that it wasn't intended to be used in. So it'd be very interesting to see uh, you know, AI programs um, when they're kind of broken by the creators and see what they come up with then. Yeah. I hadn't even really thought about the analogy of, of breaking old technologies and, and what that could possibly lead to as well. That'll be exciting. Mm. Okay. Switching gears and, uh, we'll jump into the charity that you've been a part of for the better part of, uh, 15 years now. 
uh, called Make Music Matter. And I know all about it. We've worked together on some projects. But for people who aren't familiar, can you give us the two-minute overview of what Make Music Matter is and what you do for communities around the world? Sure. So uh, I'm the board chair now of this charity called Make Music Matter. And what we do is we use the creation of music to help heal trauma. And it doesn't matter how the trauma is um, generated, but what happens is um, we get people who have suffered trauma somehow, say, for example, in our flagship site in Pansy Hospital in the DRC. Um, it was set up to um, do reconstructive surgery for women that had suffered gender-based violence as a result of the conflict in the Congo. So they come into the hospital, they would get their surgeries, and then they come in in groups with a music producer and a therapist, and they start telling their stories, and the music producer will have some chords going on in the background. They'll write their story, and then they'll turn it into more of a lyric or poetry, and then the music will come up, and then they turn them into songs, and, and then they sing the songs, and they record the songs, and we mix them professionally, and then they do performances of them, and what they do is they end up regaining their agency, and they become advocates for their situation, and, and the actual process of writing this and telling their stories um, reduces their trauma or their anxiety or their PTSD by significant amounts. We've had um, many studies done, peer-reviewed studies, and the, it, the, the trauma reduction is better than anything they've ever tried before. So essentially using the creative process to help heal trauma, and we're moving into Canada, into the Indigenous communities, working with, among other things, um, survivors of the residential school system or the children of survivors of the residential school system. Um, we, we're uh, training right now with some uh, people down at Harris Institute and uh, opening our first uh, few sites in northern Alberta within the next couple of months. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a creative endeavor that, that heals people's trauma and anxiety and PTSD. We'll have to... Uh try and make a trip out of one out to one of those canadian sites once there yeah it's it's pretty amazing and we we've we actually then take the music release it through warner music canada and the uh artists we call them artists not patients or or victims um retain ownership of their content so any royalties that come there aren't many at the moment but uh you know we've been promoting and building our our system through uh, through Warner Music Canada, and we have a publishing and record label called A4A Artists for Artists, uh, and we release the music through them through those platforms. It goes Spotify, Apple Music, all the digital platforms around the world, and we've got a couple of vinyl albums of greatest hits as well to put out. So I think we've done over 35 albums now and served over 10,000 artists. There you go. The vinyls are really cool. I saw a couple, couple years back. They are bright blue and orange and they're freaking awesome um so slight tangent to that as we sort of talk today the distilled newsletter that went out this morning is on different approaches to mental health and brain health and obviously something that's deeply connected to the make music matter ethos i mean i have my opinion but do you have any sort of opinion on why you think maybe people in Western society have been a little bit more resistant to trying some of these alternative methods of therapy? Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I think that people see probably alternative therapy as, you know, 
hippies singing bowls, you know, sitting in the middle of a field, drum circles, that sort of thing. And, and it kind of gets a bad rap. Um, but I think that, you know, if you're suffering and conventional methods aren't helping, then why not try something else? Who knows? You know, at that point, you might find something that you weren't expecting actually really helping with your healing and recovery, depending on however, you know, you know whatever your mental health situation is. You know, there, there's all kinds of, you know, opportunities to, uh, um, you know, and, and, and systems that are being built now that can help and trying different things. You know, it's kind of like when you're young and you're trying to figure out what foods you like. Well, you try different things. You don't like this. You don't like that. You know, somebody we both know won't eat anything that's green, for example. <laughs> or, but, you know, when you're young, you're sort of developing that. As, as you grow older, there's lots of things that, that you, are, you know, have had for that affect your mental health. And, you know, we're, um, we're coming into an age where there's, everybody's working on a more holistic kind of healing program for people. And I think that maybe we're, we're reaching a threshold where people are, are starting to become more accepting of these things. Yeah. Hopefully anyway. For sure. You, Touch briefly on the work that's being done at the Pansy Hospital with Dr. McQuaige and that stuff now being peer reviewed and published as, like you're saying, more effective than anything else they've tried in terms of treating PTSD and sexual trauma and, and everything like that. Um, obviously, the recognition is huge and being able to stand on that is amazing and it helps for things like funding. But um, as there has to be part of you that maybe, and I guess I shouldn't put these words in your mouth, but like doesn't actually care because you're seeing the process and you're like, this works. Like it doesn't matter if it's peer reviewed or not. Like I, I know what's happening here and I know that it works. Sure. Yeah. I mean, but, but I'm one person, right. And, and I can see the experience. I know how it works. I know how, how effective it is. The thing is, you really, when you're running a charity, you really have to reach out to other people, convince them of the same thing, and, you know, get resources. Because, I mean, we, we have, you know, lots of grants that we apply for, and some we win and some we lose. But a, a charity is always in need of financial support. So we're constantly, constantly fundraising, trying to find ways to, you know, expand. Because I think... I think that, that, that from the board perspective and from, you know, the people that work at, at Make Music Matter, we know the program is so, so great. We want to bring it to the world because, again, the, the, the method, the Healing and Harmony program helps to heal trauma no matter how it's generated. So in the Congo, it's with gender-based violence. In um, Syria, it's with children with disabilities. In Canada, it will be with Indigenous communities. You know, suffering trauma from from either residential school problems or um, you know kid boredom problems. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you know um, that, that that can generate the trauma, and this program heals it, no matter how it's generated. So, getting that word out to people and trying to bring it to as many people as we can, it just takes resources, it takes support, it takes money. Yeah, and in trying to bring the program to people we worked together on a, a concert series that make music matter called unplugged together two years ago. And firstly, that was a ton of fun. So <laughs> hopefully we can do something. And you did like, a great job. Yeah. It was definitely a ton of fun, but secondly, 
how important is it to have people who believe in the program that have sort of a devout following like the uh, Ian DeSauz and the Cone McCaslins of Billy Talon and, and Sum 41 or the Trues or whoever it be that have that devout following that they can reach more people with the idea of this program? Yeah, it's it's vitally important. This is why we, we have basically celebrity ambassadors and musical ambassadors that can tell a story. You know, we, we need to, we convince them very easily because they, they come in, see the program, go, oh, yeah, well, we know. I mean, they're writers, right? So they know the cathartic um, appeal of creative writing. Um, they, they know how that they've healed themselves sometimes from trauma. You know, it's, it's so obvious. Like how many people have written songs about tragedy and help to heal themselves by doing that. It's an obvious thing when you when you actually look at it. Um, getting those people on board, they just have a much bigger platform, right? They've got a much bigger fan base or or, or friend group or whatever. The, the the wider the audience we can spin it to, the better, because then the word gets out and then the experience gets out and then the program gets to more people. That's the whole goal. So if people want to find out more about uh, what you're doing or the goings-on of Make Music Matter, where should they go? They should go to our website. It's uh, www.makemusicmatter.org. So that's where um, we have all of our, our information there. Uh, you can read about the albums that we've done. You can read about the programs that we've got. Um, yeah, so go there. And if you uh, look on, on Spotify, if you... Uh, go on to uh, search for Make Music Matter and uh, put on albums. All of our albums are up there. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks, David. I appreciate you joining me today, and this was an awesome conversation to have. My pleasure, Blake. It's great to see you, <laughs> as always. <laughs>